sons unleashed. G'day ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Axons Unleashed. I tell you what, we've got an absolute cracking guest with us today. Interestingly, the last podcast we did was with a young fellow, that was his very first ever podcast. Now we're talking to someone who's really, really experienced doing podcasts, far more experienced than I, so I'll probably learn a couple of t- trips and uh, techniques from uh, the man himself, Craig Ball. Mate, welcome to Axons Unleashed, how are you? Thanks, Robbie, really good, mate. Fantastic to be here, and um, yeah, I was really excited when you put out the the point on, on Facebook that you're looking for people to, to jump on. I thought, yeah, I can't wait because I've been watching what you've been doing and seeing some of your guests and thought, gee, it'd be great to get a chance to come on here. So very excited. Mate, no dramas at all. Yeah, there's a bit of a you know, couple of private Facebook groups that we're all on. So uh, the Double Diamond boys there about our time down in, in SOCOM. So I said, so I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm here to, to branch out a little bit more and, and put some uh, some heavy hitters on here about um, what your experiences were joining the military, how you transition, and most importantly, what you're doing now. If I can use that little segue, ladies and gents, here's a, just a bit of a tea about you know the expert that Craig's become straight off of our, his YouTube channel. So if you want to learn how to improve your mental health, don't go anywhere. If you want to help deal and consider with your anxiety differently, that's going to help me a lot. I absolutely know. I'm, I'm not going anywhere. How to accept yourself unconditionally. What a, what a fantastic term that is. And then how to remove the negative energy that surrounds your emotional upset in order to open the open up yourself to greater levels of happiness. I tell you what, if we can just if we can finish with those four big things, mate, among others, no doubt, um, you know, have a chance to go to Craig's uh, YouTube channel, no doubt, Daniel, you'll put it in the comments there. There are literally dozens and dozens of awesome videos. What do we, you know, how to get control, how to have an intellectual humility, um, how how to get absolutely ready, why being why being kinder can improve your life, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like it's it's phenomenal what you're doing out there, mate, and. Um, I mean, just just let's get straight into it. When you live a bit of a life of protected identity status, and now you and I, you know, project ourselves out there so much and put ourselves out there on on for all to criticise, what's that like? What's that been like for you? Um, well, good because I don't really. I suppose one of the great things of having been through what we've been through to serve at that unit is you, you you tend to not to resonate easily with being embarrassed, and you seem to be you're happy to make mistakes. Goodness knows I made enough in my career, so. <laughs> Me too. Um, you seem to be able to fail faster and to get out there and keep doing it. Um, and for me, the goal has always been if I'm presenting, whether it's in front of an audience, to a camera, whatever it is, that's the goal. So I've achieved something by getting out there and having a crack. Um, and that's that's been one of the drivers for me. Plus also the big thing that keeps me going is, um, and I'm yet to discover it, you might be able to direct me to where to find this, but I know of six mates that have suicided since I left mm. in 2014. Um and I don't like to number them, but the fifth one, um, Luke Hearn, uh, was a clearance diver. We were doing a bit of work because I'd done comms for those guys um, when I was at the unit on um, on team. Okay. And um, so we we reconnected. Um, I was doing a presentation at With You With Me, one of their open days, and we reconnected. And he was working in projects. My line of cons- One of my lines of consulting is um, change management. I was getting him help to get move into change because he had a great personality, perfect person. Um, got him a mentor, and then uh, we were due to catch up the following Monday. This was a Thursday or Friday, and he didn't show up. And um, I got a text message on the Saturday night following from our former uh, platoon commander saying, is this still your um, still your number? I said, yeah, it is. He said, um, get on WhatsApp. I've got some bad news. And it was what I expected. Uh, I, I feared. I hoped it wasn't. It was completely mm. surreal, but that he'd taken his life. So 
at that point, I've, I drew a line in the sand and I've been doing a lot of what I'm doing today. Some parts of it I've been doing for about 20 years since before full-time military came into my life. Um, and that's a part of the reason, well, a bit on that when we get to it, but yeah. about the whys, about how I went into full-time military. But um, uh, I drew a line in the sand and went, I've got to focus as much as I can on helping men's mental health and I'm going to do everything I can to try to help improve those outcomes for guys and help them to realise that they're not alone. Yeah, such a powerful message and such a current topic, of course. You know, literally, um, you know, Daniel, when you and I had Sean Spain in here probably about a year ago and then, you know, a few months a few months ago, we also got the note that, you know, that Sean had decided to take take his own life due to frustrations with deviating, et cetera, and all that, so, you know, public knowledge. So, mate, it's a real um, – for people like you and I that try and live in a positive space and pass on so much information and try and make other lives, other people's lives better, sometimes a couple are going to slip through the cracks and we, you know, unfortunately our, we want to be able to make our net stronger so that doesn't occur, but you never know what's going on in other, other people's lives. So that's going to be a real outcome of this podcast right now is to tell your story how it fits into, you know, effectively making uh, people's lives better, mate. So, yeah, thanks for that little opening. Let's get into it. Where'd you grow up and why'd you join the Army? When was that? Okay, so I had two stabs at joining the Army. Um, I grew up uh, in Epping in yep, uh, North Sydney. Sydney. Yep. And um, I was uh, I was a bit of a late starter. I kind of liked the idea as a kid and, and thought it'd be great to do. But um, as where where my life sort of took me it wasn't until i was in my approaching my mid-20s that i realized this is something i really wanted to do i had some great influences um at about the age of 21 i'd worked with a couple of blokes i've done a lot of work in hospitality mostly working in bars and i've worked with a couple of guys one whose name probably um is, became quite infamous with the underbelly uh, badness series um these two blokes were working at the as doorman at the Bourbon and Beef Steak, and they just had these great stories. And I realised pretty early on that I'd made not the best choice in choosing hospitality as a as a fairly short term career short path, term, I suppose. Yeah. And I, I had this desire just to get outdoors and to do stuff. And um, these guys had been members at um, at one commando regiment as reservists, and they'd, um, they their stories just sounded great. It sounded quite adventurous, and um, I thought, well, look, I want to do something other than, you know, back then people used to smoke in bars, other than in a smoke-filled room with a roof not much bigger than my head and all blacked out most of the night working. I thought there's got to be more to life than this. So it's yeah. like a coffin, really. So um, it was at that point I started making um, making moves towards towards talking to defence recruiting and, and, yeah, getting on getting part of it. It's funny. Been, by the time I joined up, would have been about 27. What, Andros, 27 when you joined. That's, that's interesting, isn't it, Daniel, that we've had a few people come on now that have been mature age recruits. You know, so that's going to be interesting to see what it was like being at Kapuka and hanging around 17, 18-year-olds and, you know, you being, you know, some t- 10 years older. Um, it's interesting that, you know, myself included and many other guys that I joined with. So what year are we talking about with you, just to put in the context? Okay, so 19, I think my um, 1998, I thought, I think I joined first of all. Um, and I joined as a reservist when they still had two-week um, recruit courses and two-week infantry IATs. Wow. So, yeah, right. it was it was very different. I took some of the advice I've been given and chose to join first, just to make sure I liked the army, make sure that was a bit of a go. So I and I made a silly decision, but it was just because it was close to home. I joined Sydney University Regiment uh, as an enlisted, like as a digger, and um, became an infantry, got into infantry that way, and 
yeah, it was. There wasn't much going on there other than playing enemy party. I yeah, it <laughs> wouldn't have been. But it was about that time, sort of 96, 97, 98, That you know, especially myself and a bunch of other guys that I was with. I was a young bombardier at a battery, jumping with three hour air out at Holsworthy during that time, just before I went right. back down to Kapuka as a recruit instructor. But we were all working bars and nightclubs and bounces at night time or on the weekends to get a bit of extra income, because there was no deployments back then. You, you know, you're on pretty shit money, pissing up against the wall. Didn't, you know, none, none of us had girlfriends and wives and all that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, we were all living pay to pay. So it's interesting that you got out of that environment of working in hospitality. Then when we'd all been in six or seven years, we're like, fuck, let's go and do a bit of bouncing and let's go and, you know, work a couple of bars or whatever else. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting yeah. when you when you said that. I haven't had anyone on the podcast that went through your type of basic training then. So what was that like? So two weeks to become a civilian and then you turn, you know, you got a soldier. As, as I'm sure you're aware, down in Bloody Kapuka, you haven't even, you haven't even learned how to make your bed and march properly and put cam cream on after two weeks. So what was exactly it like right. for you then? Well, thankfully, when I came, now there's a bit the story. Go, there's a bit more to the story. I did actually eventually do the full three months at Kapuka, but that came a bit later. Now I'm all ears, mate. Yeah, so it was a it was a funny experience, but I was very glad that I got in and did it eventually that way to sort of break away from my reservist past. And when people ask me how long I served for, I only really talk about the, the full time years. Yeah, a lot of people do. But yeah, it was interesting. You came back different, but you didn't come back that different. And there's only so much they can teach you in two weeks, as, as you'd expect. It's really basic. I don't know why the army made that decision, but I mean, we've all seen the huge amount of cost cutting that goes on from time to time and i think that was on the tail end it was one of the very last two-week recruit courses they were all going up to a month and um then longer from that um but it was they couldn't teach you much and they couldn't teach you how to shoot i mean infantry iet for two weeks you got a bit of pt every day you got a you went bush maybe once for a bit yeah. you dug a few pits you didn't do much it was and there was the thing i could never get over was there's such a small amount of emphasis on shooting Right, yeah, that's very very interesting indeed. Um, what? Tell me about the other people that were on the two week course. Were they like you, professionals, and like people that have been in the in the real world for quite a while, just looking to scratch that itch and maybe doing a bit of army stuff on the side? Um, there was a few from different backgrounds. One guy in particular um, who I stayed in touch with for a while. He um, did a fair bit of rugby. Um, ended up as a financial planner for one of the banks, and he um, he actually went across because I was getting stuffed around at Sydney University Regiment. They wouldn't let me go over to, uh, to one commando or they tried to make it difficult. Um, and he didn't have those problems and he went across a bit earlier. I remember him, things were starting to, you know, I was starting to get a good uh, bit of support at Sydney University Regiment. I was looking to get to go and sub one for corporal and all this sort of stuff. And I was thinking, oh, this is going okay. And then he called me up one day and spoke to me at length on the phone to say to me, listen, you're wasting your time there. You've got to get over here. This is where you want to be. That's where the real stuff and is. And it was like, it was like the universe was going, yeah, come on, this is what you want joined in the first place for, to think, to see, to test yourself, to see if you've got what it takes. Um, get on with the job, you know. So did you go and do that, or how did you eventually get to Kapuka? Um, so I eventually got to Kapuka when I re-enlisted. So I re-enlisted at 33. Um, I'd done, uh, I'd been across to one commando as a reservist. I'd um, attempted selection in 2000. I'd failed selection my first attempt. I attempted it again. I nearly failed it the second time, but somehow scraped through under the under the watchful eye and guidance of Hans Fleer, yep. resting peace. Yep. And um, that was, he was incredibly influenced to me. Uh, but then when I came back off those courses, and I made the mistake of not, and I consider it to be a mistake of not going to East Timor when I had the opportunity um, to help 
reinforce that um, that deployment. Mm. Uh, I went back to one commando, um, and although it's you know it's got its pluses and everything, it just felt like I was going to something, and it, it just it was a bit of a boys' club back then, and it just sort of petered out for me. Yeah. So I found myself out of the army reserve, um, back working doors, uh, doing all kind you know doing stuff, trying to keep things going. I'd, I'd had a period of time where I'd worked for an entrepreneur to develop myself as a speaker in the very early 2000s, not long after passing selection. And um, I was at a bit of a loose end. I was working very hard to try to get things going, uh, get my speaking career on track and everything else. And um, what happened was um, a friend of mine came to visit. And I always had this dream of, of going back to, to the army in some capacity, I was telling myself. And a really good mate of mine stopped by once again and said, um, why don't you consider a full-time contract, even if it's just for four years? And he said, you'll get your chances these days of getting deployed is very high, uh, and it'll just help you out a lot. And what it's actually done for me has been much more significant than that. So um, at 33, 2006, I um, went down to Kapuka. I did uh, the full three months. Um, I'd been out for a couple of years at least by that stage. And... um, it was, yeah, once again, way more of an eye-opener because at least the previous time I'd tried, you know, done a recruit course, I was not too distant from everybody in age. I wasn't that much older. I might have been 26-ish. Um, but this time there was it was stark. There was one other guy who was older than me, but there was a, you know, a couple of guys around the 30 mark, but everybody else a huge was gap. much younger. So a- Jesus, so let me just recap. you like adult – Joined the joined the Army Reserve, did your two-week recruit course, did a couple of weeks of infantry IETs, did a few weekends and Tuesdays, whatever else, eventually then morphed across to one commando regiment, did some form of commando selection, then went back as a civvy and then jumped into Kapuka as a 33-year-old. Yep. Fuck me. <laughs> that, that's a technical term for wow. I'm like, I'm like Jesus, that's, uh, that is, you said there's a bit of a story behind it. I wasn't expecting that, but tell me what it was like because I loved my time down at Kapuka as, as an RI. I would have loved having a 33-year-old there. I'll be like, pull him aside, right, right April Fed, you and me, you're going to fucking tell me what's going on with those young, you know, I need guys in my platoon, by the way, but yeah. Well, that was something that occurred, I believe, throughout my career at various stages because often senior officers would be about the same age, so you'd, they'd have the ear of the digger because they could talk to you. Yeah, it's a you great way of putting it. Or, or a certain degree of respect because you'd had a crack at life in the outside world and you got to an age and gone, no, this is what I want to be doing with myself. Um, it was, yeah, it helped that my – so this was, this was my best mate at this stage was the Sergeant PTI. He'd, he'd been the PTI at one commando and we'd stayed in touch ever since. And, um, yeah, he was coming down for a posting in, in – um, in Kapuka, and as luck would have it, defence recruiting didn't stuff me around too much. That so actually managed to make it there while still still posting there. They do like to make retreads wait. I know that much, mm. and lo- pretend to lose their paperwork and just to see if you're keen. Um, but it was good from that point of view. I had some very interesting dealings. I had a, a corporal in charge of us who was um, from five seven, I think, and he was very full on. And he started to try to you know give me a bit of grief and, and you know gee me up a little bit about having been from from one commando and i actually pulled him aside and said i don't appreciate this this treatment um I've, wow good on you yeah, i'd had dealings with those guys and i don't think they had the best name and the rest of the, the military and i said look i'm trying to get away from all of that i'm just here i'm happy to, to be a soldier i had no expectations of whether my past was going to help me through um i had no expectations of any of that i just thought i'm going to come in here do some time, get a trade, and then decide what, what life's going to hold from there. Um, I was really, I'd, I'd actually tried to leave a lot of my past behind, and 
Um, so even to the point on the day we enlisted, I was filling out the paperwork and it said a four-year contract and I knew that, that my role was a six-year contract and I got them to correct it. No, I, tell me, I'm interested. What was uh, what was old mate's reaction to you as a mature age recruit pulling him aside and go, "Hey, Corporal, can I have a bit of a chat?" And like, put you serious adult. You're probably older than him too. He's probably, probably down there was, as a 25, yeah. 26 year old, buddy, young guy. Thought he was yeah. flying through, and then he's, he's come. He's come up to a a, a worldly and well spoken and more mature Craig Ball. Going, listen, fuckface, I'm not here. You're trying to play that game. Leave me alone. I was fucking angry. <laughs> what was his, his, what I've was never his been reaction? So angry when talking to someone that my jaw shook. Yeah. <laughs> what was his reaction though? He said he said um he apologized. He said, obviously, you know, I've, I've worked with some of those guys, they're not the best guys to work with. Obviously, you're not like that. You've made this effort. And um, because I pulled him up, I said, What's with the public humiliation? And I, I even asked blokes in my room at the time, I said, am I being paranoid or am I being over the top by thinking that I'm being treated this way? They go, no, no, that's definitely directed at you. I go, sweet. So I go down and stood on the line and said, hey, I want to have a chat. Came into a little interview room. I said, what's the, he goes, what's the problem? I said, everything you said from two o'clock till now. Um, and he started about it and he goes, are you okay about it? I said, and I just went, oh, I am pissed. Mm, good on just, you. Yeah, launched him. And the next week he said, thank you. He said, I said, well, look, I'm not here to, to screw anyone's career around. I'm here, I'm here to, I'll deal with the person that gives me the shit at the time. And I'll, oh, that's what I'm, that's the way I've always rolled. And I, I just really put down on the line. And yeah, he, at the end of the recruit course, we were having a beer at the, um, the boozer when we had our march out and everything. And he came up and wanted to shake my hand. And I was having a beer and I went, you know, cheers like that. He goes, no, no, I want to shake your hand. Good on, like, yeah. That's pretty cool. That's, what's that's what's the, the lesson out of that that I'm observing is that if you fundamentally know something is right or wrong, have the internal courage to stand up for yourself and say something or address it in a positive, mature, um, respectful way. And that's yeah, what you did and have a look at the outcome you got, mate. Exactly. Courage in your convictions, I think. If you, if you can back yourself, um, even if you're wrong later, it's no harm in apologising if you realise you were wrong later or you can say, look, that might have been a mistake or whatever. But seriously, back yourself 100% because, you know, you're the only person at the end of the day that you've, so in many occasions, that you've got to defend often and it's it's your – it might be your integrity or it might be anything else in your life. I These days for me, it's with my some of my clients, I call out bullying in the workplace. Mm. I'm, the worst, I'm the bully's worst day, man, when I call them out. It does not go down well. <laughs> and it's often not me. People don't bully me these days, but um, it's defending people in my team. And I'm like, I am, I am stuffed if my team members are going to cop that shit because they, they often don't feel they can defend themselves. So, yeah. um, Where'd you yeah. go after Kapuka then? Tell us that story and at IETs um, and first unit, etc. I signed up to be um, a electronic warfare operator until I discovered what it, what it meant, and you know the security clearance required that you may not get, and all this other stuff. And I had a bit of a life prior to that. I, I was under no illusions. Plus, I was also aware of the fact that I was not getting any younger. So I thought I got some of the way into the training for it, uh, the school of languages, and went no. Nah. I'm going to get out, go back to School of Signals and become a radio operator. And that's exactly what I did. So that took a bit longer. I was there for about 18 months. Um, and prior, like about a week prior to my um, IT starting for radio operator, we had um, a, in the holding platoon, we had a sergeant major who was um, commando qualified. And he pulled me aside. He said, do you want to go to um, 4RER? I said, yeah, I wouldn't mind. He goes, well, do you want to go or not? I'm thinking, 
yeah, of course I did. <laughs> I go, yeah, yes, of course I did. I tried to sound like I was backing myself. And he goes, it's done. I've already organised it. You're going. I go, brilliant. And so I thought, look, I was still in a bit of a phase in my life where I didn't 100% know where the army was going to take me. But I thought, if you turn down an opportunity like this, this will be a career limiter, um, irrespective of how you feel. And um, I'm just glad every day that I, I said yes and, and went for it. Um, post my ITs, we had a, it sort of looked after me a little bit as well. We had um, we had someone su- oh they didn't suicide they drug overdosed at the end of the course school signals core is a bit loose it's, <laughs> and um, uh, overdosed on heroin and um, afterwards wow. you know, yeah the army being the army everybody on the, the course had to do a drug a two or three day drug training course don't do drugs you know or somebody standing saying drugs and bad okay or something and they they came up to me afterwards and said you don't have to go and they said if anyone asks to say unit won't release you. And, um, and that was it. I got a bit of special treatment. Um, and then I rocked up uh, first night. Oh, the night before, I was due to parade at, um, at uh, 4 hour. What year we're talking now? We're talking 2008. Right. Um, yeah, 2006. And it was, so I signed on the dotted line December 2006. By September 2008, I was going to my unit. And I showed up the night before. And um, yeah, I, there was a sick sergeant on Spud, and he was um, in Charlie Company, and he took me under his wing. Basically, him and um, him and uh, Adrian Humphreys were um, head were were on duty together, and they um they we just sat around and chatted most of the night. And I said, yeah, just there's no lines ready for you, just stay here the night. And um, we chatted for ages, and they wanted to know about everything. And then um, the next day, they took me into Charlie Company for the rest of the year, and then I was posted to Alpha Company after that. So. Um, it was a really good intro from guys that knew their stuff, I thought. Yeah, nice. Um, just trying to think. You would have, I was finishing my career, finishing my three years down at Duntroon, meeting some other guys, and then went straight across as a task group S5 in December 2008, and then got back mid-2009 and then um, took up OC Ops Support Company. So that's when you and I would have first run into each other in the unit then. And as we were yeah. sort of talking off air quickly, can't pinpoint exactly when Craig met Robbie when there's 700 dudes in the unit and you're literally crossing paths 100 yeah. miles an hour and, you know, a, a bunch of different capabilities. So um, did you have to do selection again out of interest? No, I didn't have to. Right. Apparently I found out at one point, though, administratively, I was the most um, – audited person in the army they audited and audited my paperwork and i remember there was a um a captain who from my looked like he as walked i would have guessed um those goldie. bastards yeah um goldie's <laughs> name was i know and goldie he, yeah he yeah. goes to me mate if they keep pushing this he goes everybody at so command is auditing you he goes if they keep pushing this i'm gonna i'm gonna call up hansley myself and get him to work as a ref, you know, to be a reference for you. He was an S one at the unit. He was taking care because that's that's when we were going through the D- DFRT to get a bunch of heap extra pay, and everyone was, you know, they were auditing everyone's files. So yeah, yeah. I know exactly so they, what you mean. And they didn't want anybody to get that extra couple of bucks or whatever it was. Like, I mean, it sounds like a lot of extra at the time compared with what people were making, and a lot of the other parts of the army might have been jealous of this extra money and you know derogatory comments made about people in the unit and so forth, but because of that but the army's a funny place and i think to a degree there's a bit of jealousy that they were getting paid more despite if they if the average person came and saw what someone at the unit did in an average week or day they would go no no no, i'll go back to to what i'm doing thanks i'll go and shut the fuck up yeah correct yeah facing danger doing you know uh, using various high school stuff etc etc um 
What's your most your most fondest fondest memory of SOCOM? Wow, the mates having yeah. the best mates. Yeah, and there's multiple memories that, that tie into that, but um, probably so having mates and how I finished on my 2012 my second deployment to Afghanistan. That was seriously the highlight of my career. I got tasked with mentoring the partnering force who were um, uh, Matula Khan's relos, the mm. um, the uh, special police. And the feedback I got, not only from my boss at the time, who was a uh, one of those old SAS um, veterans who turned into a he turned, he'd as walked as well when he got far enough down the track, and he, he was just a legend, he's just a great bloke. And he wrote me a pair of arts so I could pretty much walk on water. It was yeah, nice. I couldn't believe it. I used to take it to job interviews, say, "Hey, this is what I did in the military. <laughs> think what I can do for you." But good, nice. um, good on you. It was just a great experience, and yeah, the relationships I built with my mates and that that was just second to none. Yeah, good. Um, Tell us about so how many how many we're talking about you when someone asks how long you did the military you're like when I went to Kapuka to when I got out how many years was that in total then seven and a half seven yeah mate so yeah and and spanning over the first time you really went and did your um your two week course there you probably you know the better part of fifteen years all up that you would have been exposed to the military in some way shape or form yeah my certificate of service says something around twelve and a half something like that okay. Fantastic. Tell us about when you first thought you were going to be able to transition then. When, when, did, that, when did that bug start, to, that thought, pattern, thought bubble in your mind? I planned it. I had a plan from get-go. I wow. Had a, uh, not a lot of people don't say that. Say again? A lot of people don't say that. No, I had a plan. I was ready to go. So whilst I thought it was a bit of a – like I, I was lost before I went into full-time army and didn't have stuff fully together and all the rest of it, everything I developed in the civilian world helped me to get out. Um, and I was all from day one, though, I was looking for, for opportunities, things. Could I pick up a trade here or there that would set me up outside? Uh, what, what could I do? And um, I was looking around prior to my second deployment and I'd even had a chat to I took a so the deployment cycle was being first half of the year and the second half of the year. I took a early deployment when it was offered to me um, just ahead of my cycle had I've stayed with Alpha Company, with Delta Company, so that I could come back, tidy up everything and hopefully post take an easy posting out of that um out of that and i spoke to that with schema um the schema rep said yep no worries I already knew him from school of sigs he said mate it's, it's considered it's set in stone well someone cracked the stone when i was over there on my second deployment i had to stay for another year so i got i got a fifth year um ended up being on tag for another year which was good gave me a bit more time to explore because i came back after that 2012 deployment I hadn't just been mentoring, I'd been, you know, ambassador work, cultural awareness, uh, project management, um, learning development, um, but also managing relationships, putting out fires, um, all kinds of things. And we successfully got the capability to work over 200 k's away, HF radios being such that it doesn't take a lot of hard technology to do that. Mm. Um, But the relationships I built were incredible. And I came home and I was finishing a psych degree and just through networking, someone said, oh, you're looking for change management. That's what you're looking for, Duke. So I was, and through that, by staying at the unit another year, I was able to once a month catch up with a mate who I'd been a reservist with, who just so happened he was a change manager. And I started trying to find out everything I could about that. And um, then when the time came, I posted out um, in at the end of 2013. And um, I then went to uh, HMS Canberra. I had a mate who'd been dragged out a 152 or kicked out a 152 and sent there through probably no fault of his own and he just wanted to get back to um so command comms any way that he could so 126 was an easy option for him and um we swapped out and then within a couple of months i was gone from there too so um 
I didn't muck around too much. Mate, it's good. Think about the the cascading or avalanching rapid implementation of new technologies and capabilities that the unit was going through 10 11 12 13 like change management and being open to change and embracing change and implementing change is probably the one the the that's humans humans normally don't like change humans love a habit humans love safety and security and surety but just for you like i feel like you were just on the roller coaster and you were fucking just loving every single bit of bit of it and then uh, no, that's that would that no doubt would have helped you when you got out yeah, military is no exception. Military doesn't like change much. But um, one of my first roles, one of my sort of critical roles that set up my career, I've been doing this now for um, eight and a half, it'll be nine years this year, was I'd had a couple of contracts that hadn't gone so well for a little bit and then I got a job at um, one of the government agencies and one of those was going around to people with iPads, teaching them how to use a system and it was so close to, you know, helping grunts with radios. Here's how we fill the radio. Here's how we manage the radio. Here's how we do all this stuff. It was so close to it that it, it almost felt like I was back in the military in a, in a, for, for all the good reasons, you know? Yeah, nice. That's that's fantastic. I think that's the um, – it's the greatest gift that one can get, receive, and implement is finding out who you were in the military and taking some of those soulful skills, not necessarily techful skills, into an endeavour in the real world and then go ahead and crack on with it. It's just, did, did you feel like you created your own soft landing? Yeah, 100%. Um, and I'd, I'd done it in a way where through networking, I'd helped to get a start from another ex-military person, not just this first mate who was already doing it. I'd made a new mate through some defence networking contacts um, who was had been in the Royal Navy. He was a project manager. He understood what I brought to the table. And then when I got this particular role that I just mentioned, the actual um, program manager had worked with military. She knew what my trade capability was and she knew it would be an easy fit. It was like, no worries. When I came and told her, I, I can't believe this. She goes, yeah, I knew you would. I knew you'd just take through a pipe of duck to water. Yeah, so, so good. And also... And that's like one of my drivers as well. I like to try to help people getting out of the military who may have an aptitude for that skill set because it can be a very liberating and um, well-paid career. Yeah, nice. Um, certainly taking some of the, the knowledges and skills and experiences from the military is really uh, handy to be able to make a transition, but making sure you've got the right personality and character to never, ever burn a bridge. So then one day, as you just rightly said, you'll meet someone that you're used to know in the military and like, oh, yeah, Craig or Robbie, oh, they're, they're, they're good blokes. Let's let's shortcut them and like you know bring them straight straight to the top of the pile. So it's really good to know you kept your networks open as well when you transitioned. That's hundred percent. And never burning a bridge is such a significant thing because I get a lot of work from recruiters, and sometimes recruiters they don't perhaps some of them I've had certain ones that strike me as not being the most uh, you know not carrying this particular ones that I came across not having the most integrity perhaps at times mm-hmm. or make me suspect that they didn't or. You know, perhaps I hadn't been told the 100% truth. I never told any of them. I never got in anyone's face. I just said, thank you. And then when I needed them somewhere down the track, I got a job. It was, and I had a mate from school I was working with once, we're chatting regularly. He wanted to try and get in my line of work and he has done successfully. And he told me once, he called a recruiter a liar. I go, oh, dude, stop. Stop. I can't help you if you're going to be like this. Yeah. I cannot help you anymore if you're going to do this. Let, it, was, it wasn't him that called him his liar, it was the ego. Yeah, we let's sort of let's use that as a bit of a bridge mate now, mate, into what, what you're doing. Like just in plain language, what do you do to help people's mental health and manage anxiety and just you know, just make people happier in life? Um, well, I'm a mentor. I'm a mental health and empowerment mentor. So what that means is 
I um, develop ways of interacting with people, whether that's presenting, holding workshops. I've just started a men's walk up here where I've moved to, Central Coast. We moved to the Central Coast in August, brought a family up here, bought a house, and mental health is, um, or suicide is above the state average up here, so we started a men's walk. I had a lot of guidance from the guys at the Penrith Men's Walk where we used to live, and they run the most successful walk in the state. So I adopted similar principles, and now I've got a walk that goes every Thursday night. And I've been on updating counselling courses over the years, so I just let people talk. Um, some of the things that I share with them is some basic principles of how to start thinking about improving your mental health, things such as forgiveness, forgiving yourself, for God's sake, give yourself permission to, to let go and to be okay with what's happened. You can't control the past. You can only tr control how you feel about the past. So what are we going to do differently? Um, Realising that everything in life is a choice. So the bunch of principles that I bring in and then what I actually teach once I've got people and, and I've helped to start to open them up to what I talk about is I use the very first, the original version of what today has been bastardised into CBT. Like a lot of veterans, I've had CBT done to me. It was a very watered-down version. The original version of CBT is rational emotive behaviour therapy. That's what I use with people because it's more like a philosophy of living. It's deeply rooted in stoic philosophy, and I use that to help shape, help people to shape their outcomes for themselves. And it is, yeah, it's. I first discovered it back in 2001 when I was working for that entrepreneur I, worked, I mentioned earlier. And that is forms the core of what I share with people. But there's heaps to it, and it's it's really just being there and being up, you know, offering and opening yourself up. The consulting work with change management gives me lots of opportunity to teach that. Um, my current biggest client has got me rolling it out across their business of 175 people, um, and it's it's just growing the opportunity to do more and more of it. Mate, the when I watched the Top Gun Maverick movie, when um when Val Kilmer wrote on the screen there, it's time to let go. You were sitting next to me on that movie. I'm like, fucking hell, that was like very powerful. Easier said than done, no doubt. I still have dreams now that I'm still in the military or I'm there as a visiting lecturer or I've gone back and then something happens and then boom, you're not there anymore. Like, you know, it's like you just, you realise that your time in the military has now come to an end. And I'm like, oh shit, it's really sad to be in the military, but I've been really glad that I've been doing something ever since. And it's just a weird fucking blend of like, elements of my life in your experience when you're when you're speaking to people like me that like we're in the military for a little while and maybe got out with a little bit of rank under their under their name or to their name how are they finding it letting go and like what's what's some of the if you can pass on some advice to some of our listeners there about if you have transitioned and you're going through some identity crisis or you're about to transition you're like oh fuck i'm not going to be a lieutenant colonel in the real world anymore no champ and by the way no one gives a fuck that you've got 25 fucking post nominals either it's time to let go how do you help them sort of you know with that sort of stuff yeah well realizing that you're a human being at the end of the day so there's going to be some rude shocks one, I went, had an interview once and they said to me, look, we're a bit concerned about your background being ex-military. I go, why is that? They said, we've had ex-military change managers come through here. I said, were all of them officers? They said, yes. I said, that's why they didn't last. I said, I was a digger my whole career. I had to achieve everything by negotiation. I said to them, here's how officers do change in the military. But Friday, everyone gets kept back after four o'clock. You're told Monday you'll do it differently this way. Everyone comes in Monday and does it because they know they're going to get charged if not. In the real world, people don't give a shit. And just yeah. like you said, they don't care about your post-nominals. So think about 
one of the best advice I gave to a guy, and he then went on and started a consulting career and business and claimed this advice helped him set up this career. I'm not going to name him, but he's a really good guy, was he'd been a digger for six years and then became an officer, retired as a captain. He said, to, I said to him, okay, you're going into this consulting world. I want you to forget everything you've ever learned as an officer. Go in with the eyes of a digger. Go in with a wide, open eyes, sense of wonder, just an understanding that this is new and you can handle it. But just go in and take it, take it all in. And I said, then as you move forward, pick and choose those skill sets you learn as an officer that are going to make you better at doing this. Mm. Okay. Some of those things aren't going to, but some of them will. And some of those wise leadership lessons and that kind of stuff is can only serve you. So pick them, but, but remember, be humble and remember, post-military and we all have stuff. That that conditioning of that training never, ever leaves you fully, as you know. Just start to let go of it and day by day you will move forward. But always remember the best qualities, if you let them, the things that serve, the things that make you more efficient, more disciplined, and everything else will always stick with you, and they're the ones you want to you want to focus on. There's no doubt about it, and we've all seen it before, and I got to see it down at Duntroon as well because, as you probably remember, I, I was a sergeant changeover also, 12 years mm-hmm. in OR, 11 years as, a, as an officer. Um, I saw it when I, was, when I was a senior NCO. Those, the best officers are those ones that have had exposure to being a digger. Fucking end of story. Full stop. That's not an opinion. That is a statement. You even know that there is an internal rank structure at Duntroon and you're a digger and you're a lance corporal and whatever else. It's fabricated. It's like it's like uh, being in the maths experiment, if I can use that terminology, right? <laughs> it's not the real world. But they don't really know what it's like to be a digger. But you and I and everyone else who went it through that way, they really do. So there, I, I can categorically say some of the success that I've had in business have not come from those things that I learned being an officer. It come from those things that I learned being a digger or a junior NCO, where you've got to be able to build genuine relationships with people, not force your way in by the rank that you wear. Have an, an authentic personality where you're not trying to be someone you're not, or just be be yourself. And you yeah. care so much, you don't fucking care. So it's really, really interesting that uh, that some of those things, like the 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 knowledge skills and attributes we got as a digger in the real world serve us more than the, some of the technical skills you get when you go up the ranks. That's that's the take, takeaway I just got from you anyway. Yeah, that's 100% right. That's exactly where I'm, I'm taking that. It's 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 a difficult world to try to navigate, but, I mean, diggers have always got this level of preparedness. They're good to go in so many ways. They're not... They don't have to, thankfully, they don't have to sit there and do paperwork and sign things off for the next, you know, yeah. six months. But and and also, diggers don't do this. And I know not all officers do this, but some do. Some take the, the, the you know, take the, the successes of their diggers and make it look like they're awesome, like they led them or that they had some. Often they didn't. Mm. And that, that taking that pride, and I've worked with people, man. I've worked with people who've never been in the military who take, you know, who like pelicans, they fly in, shit on everything. They try to take um, other people's, I'm not joking, man. Yeah. They, they try to take other people's credit that they, you know, and they get up there and they have a go and then they try and bludge and get out of stuff and they're so obvious, but they still keep getting paid. Mm. You, it's, it's do, you, do you find it sometimes frustrating when you go to a corporate organisation and there's no military background or mindset in that organisation and they're just... They're devoid of culture. They're devoid of leadership. They're devoid of direction. And like, you feel like you don't want to fucking shake him and go, "You should have bloody went back to the military." Like, you, yeah, just tell us about that. Okay, here's the lesson. All right, out of those questions, firstly, they're going to have culture no matter what. It's either going to be good or it's going to be bad. True. But, okay. If there's nothing 
in any way resembling anything that looks like the military, that's fantastic because I could be there all day. It, you're never going to run out of work with an organisation like that. So don't ever underestimate it. Um, we don't have time to be frustrated. There's too much to do. We don't have time to to use. See, that's my example of letting go of those things from the military. You know, you come in, something wasn't working, you'd get in there and you'd make it. You don't need to do that. You come in, you answer the questions, you support and empower those people because it's not their fault that they didn't have that experience or that exposure, that level of discipline. It's nobody's fault that they do it. They're just doing the best that they can. So being humble, being forgiving of others and being accepting. So when I talk about accepting yourself unconditionally, it's a bit like forgiveness. When you learn to forgive yourself, you also learn to forgive others. Same as when you learn to accept yourself unconditionally, which is the opposite or the antithesis of self-esteem, which is a damaging, horrible concept that mm. hurts people and holds them back. So accepting yourself unconditionally means you can accept others unconditionally. You don't need to like them. Okay, just like with forgiveness, you don't need to – you can forgive them, but you don't need to accept what they've done as being good. It lets you off the hook, but also lets them off the hook to a degree. Um but coming in there, being completely humble and learning about how they do stuff. Now, you might scratch your head when you go home and go, this organization's awesome. I can be here forever. It depends on your level. And if you can if you can deal with that ambiguity, that craziness or, you know, lack of direction that, that is inherent to you, it's easy. You will stand out like a leader very, very quickly and they will rally around you because you give that voice or you give that guidance in such a way, these are the kind attributes that we've got as being military people that we can help and share with others. And they will warm to that and they will work with you. You just need to remember, it's a bit like working with the Jundis. They've got, they're as loosey goose as you'll ever get. They're way looser than anybody I've ever met in the civilian world. And that's good, but you can work with them. And if you if you let them up, like I, used, like I said to the Jundis when I last worked with them, I said, thank you for opening your hearts to me. I was trying to use language that would, when translated, would appeal to them. But that's what they do, hearts and minds. You open that up and it's you take the judgment out of the way because at the end of the day, you're only judging yourself or you're missing the opportunity for a great lesson that could be hidden in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, fuck, I'm loving this, mate. I feel like I could talk to you for another two hours. We'll go for another 10 minutes or so. Um, yeah. This is something that's near, near and dear to my heart. What about when, um, when you are betrayed or when something really negative occurs in the workspace – how do you get over that? And I've got I've got a saying that I pass on to some of you know, um, having an enduring dislike for someone is like drinking poison and ex- and expecting them to get sick. But I'm interested in your your thing now is like when you when you have an an, an element of betrayal is probably the, the key word there. How do you get over that quicker than what you know you sometimes your um, yourself allows you to? Yeah. Well, first thing. Um, and this is taking something a little bit from the Stoics. The first thing, acknowledge the emotion that you're feeling in the instant because sometimes you can snap. Sometimes you can come back and go, damn it, or shit, or fuck, whatever that is, and you can go and, and, and you may look for someone to blame, okay? It may be clear, all right? But what's happened in that situation is that that person has shown you how they can be to deal with. They've given you some incredible intelligence. They've given you a real guide about how to work with them. So keep them on board because you get more done that way. Take that step back. Realise that they're like you, a fallible, worthwhile human being. Even if it's only their mother that could love them and could consider them worthwhile, you don't have to at this point. But consider they've made a mistake in your eyes or made a mistake towards you. You make mistakes every day too. So pick it. Just look at what you're feeling in that moment. Is that anger? Is that aggression? What Are you feeling You know, really wound up and pissed off? And then... Try to work out 
you know, what's causing that? What's at the root of that? Is it a belief about other people? Is it a belief about yourself? How can I be so stupid that to think that way? Well, stop beating yourself up because you're not stupid. You're starting to think through this and then challenge it. Well, you know, is it true that this person's a complete idiot? No, there's some part of their life that they're not a complete idiot, no doubt. Um, is it is it logically follow that just because somebody, you know, cheated me out of something or betrayed me some way or tried to make me look like a dickhead, um, does it logically follow that I have to hate them for the rest of my life? Of course not. It's only going to hurt me. And is it helping for me to obsess over this? If you're starting to answer no to any of those, you start to learn how to challenge that negative energy out. If you can challenge that negative energy out, you can then come in in a fairly neutral space and go, okay, can I work with this person? Yes or no? Mm. Are they are they like this all the time or just like this sometimes? Or, or can I now just read them so much better? That's yeah. part of the process that I would go through. For I love it. Hey, I'd love to hear one of your um, one of your success stories. Have you got again? No names, no pack drills. But can you think of a circumstance where you've gone into an organisation where there's a leader or a worker that's really struggling, and you have then taken them under your wing and you've done your mentoring and done your coaching and whatever else, and now they're just kicking ass and blossoming. And maybe if you've got an opportunity to pass pass on some of the elements of their story that are, you know that the listeners are really find impactful. Yeah, um, I've got the best story, and I never thought it would happen. And, and this, this is, is unscripted, by the way. I did not ask you this beforehand. I'm, I'm literally, I'm involved in this conversation. I'm like, tell me more, but I want you to tell me a story around it so I can really, you know, ram home to me and everyone else listening. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. And this has become a bit of a cornerstone of how I operate now. Uh, back in 2016, I came into this organisation. We were delivering a computer system. They didn't like it. They weren't interested. They couldn't give a crap. And at the very first, um, at the very first briefing, we were doing briefings at two in the afternoon and ten at night because of the shift changeover. These guys and women were mostly guys. There was very few. There was a couple of women back then. There hopefully there'd be more. But there was all guys at that stage in this briefing. And one of the guys started telling him about what was coming. And you know, I'm, I'm there. You know, happy. You know, always happy when I get to share stuff when I'm standing up in front of a group. Um, and he was like, look, mate, I've been here 28 years. I've seen everything. This won't last. Blah, 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 usual negativity. And I was like, I'm going to learn everything I can from you. I'm not going to let go of you until I've learned what it is I've come here to learn from you. So that night, that we, briefings ended a bit after 10. That night, I stayed there till midnight talking to the guy. Um, turns out he was the head of the health safety committee at this, uh, at this depot. This was a diesel fleet depot. And um, we got chatting and he said, oh, what else do you do other than this? I said, well, I run a resilience program. Anyway, um, it turned out that they were trying to run a program over rail safety week that year to reduce their lost time injuries. So they said to me, can you run this program? How long does it go for? Now, back then it was two hours. It's about three hours now. Um, in fact, I'm running one tomorrow. I'm really excited. I love any chance I get to share this stuff. I can feel life. it, mate. It's good. Anyway, um, so they said, can you run it twice a day for five days? I was so wrecked by the end of that week, I had to be carried out effectively. I but bet. Um, I ran it for them and I would show up at 7 o'clock every morning at their start of work brief to try to encourage them to come. And they're like, who's this clown? He's come in, he's, he wants us to do this computer system, you know, whatever. You know, I could see the faces on people that were disgruntled. But at the start of the week, there was a few people coming. But through word of mouth, slowly people kept coming. And there was apparently, I learned this later, one guy who served there who was ex-military who went to the boss of the fleet depot and said, can I do it twice? And he actually came and, and did the, the program again during that week. Uh, long story short, uh, six months later, I got asked to go to um, a barbecue out there. I'd moved on, my project had moved me to the next depot and I was working somewhere else. And they said, um, we're having a barbecue for no lost time injuries. And they'd achieved a thousand, uh, no, they'd achieved 200 days of no lost time injuries. And when, um, when the, 
general manager of Fleet, gave him the award, the first word out of this guy's mouth who was there on that very night, who, who was being dismissive of what I was trying to develop and share with them, said, I'm sure everybody here would agree that Craig's program was instrumental in helping us to achieve this. Now, low-loss time injuries for those who work in blue-collar environments. Now, this is a significantly big deal. Fast forward three years later, 2019, I've left, I've left this organisation and come back again. All of the fleet managers come and find me. This is 2019 and wanted to have a coffee with me and asked me if I could run my program again. I said, oh, okay. And I shared that story. And they said, no, no, no. It's a, it's over a thousand days of no lost on injuries you've helped us to achieve now. Wow. So, yeah, that's a huge yeah. addition to their bottom line and work safety and morale, everything that goes with it. But think about it. Three everything, years. A lost time injury is everything from, you know, a couple of hours off to see a doctor up to nearly death. Yeah. Yeah, tracking. How many people have gone home safe to their families because of something that they learned in that program? My yeah, goodness. Phenomenal. Like, that is the most humbling thing. I don't say that to say, hey, man, this works. I say it is one of the most humbling experiences of my life. And that's what keeps me up at night, helping people, taking that extra time. If people want to hang back after a session and want to talk and got questions, I'm tireless in my passion to help people to do this and to try to somehow help men everywhere to stand women to step back from going too far with their mental health. Yeah, a bit. Um, just last little point I want to cover off on, mate, is that I think it'd be another humbling thing you've done is um, you've written a book. I have. Tell us I about have. that. Yeah, yeah, there it is on the screen. Reclaim Your Power. I love it, mate. I haven't read it. You sent me a copy about two weeks ago, and um, I've just spent had a whole week with my wife being over in the US. I've had to run the household by myself, um, but I have flicked through it. I've gone through, you know, seen some of the some of the keynotes here. But most importantly, and I've thought about writing a book too, by the way, um, which is TBC, TBA, ladies and gents. Um, I've got too many fucking R-rated stories that I just don't know would make the print, quite frankly. And I, I don't want to tell half of a bullshit story because if anyone reads the book that knows me, they're like, that's not actually what happened. And my wife's like, you already, I haven't even started reading it yet and I've got about 25 caveats of which I can't cover. So I'm like, well, why fucking bother? Anyway, what was it like writing a book? Tell me. Um, it was a pretty intense process. I'd already done a lot of preparation for the book um, and not really realise it. So I'd, I've already got a, a produced a 10-module online program, which I was able to turn all the videos on into um, into Word files. So they produced subtitles, downloaded as a Word file, and chunked it all together. And what I ended up using that for was I knew my process. I made the, um, the book from that program, so I knew the chapter order and everything, and I've been teaching this for 20 years. By that stage, I just started writing each chapter out as I wanted to, mm -hmm. and then I would go forward to the notes that I'd taken through those um, things and um, through those uh, subtitle into Word doc thing and just pick out any points I might have missed and just increase and add to it. The impetus for it, though, um, we'd sold a property, um, and this might be might tie in nicely to, to your business, but we'd sold a, a property in WA that I'd foolishly gotten involved with mm. and made a $20,000 loss. Now, the $20,000 loss wasn't an issue, but I wanted to, I reached out to the bank and said, hey, um, you need to en enact the lender's mortgage insurance. There is going to be a loss. We're going to be able to cover the debt, but I just need you to do it. And the bank then turned around and stole $16,000 from us. And I had to fight to get that back. And you know what pissed me off? I went, this is extremely stressful having this money taken from me. I don't want my family to be in a position where $16,000 loss 
is this significant ever again? And if I don't, and I was doing a mentoring program where the part was to start writing a book. I thought if I write this book, this is going to help set me up and my family up so we don't have to fear experiences again. And as a result, and the opportunities I've been developing from the book has helped to do that. So it was a significant driver. Mm, bloody hell, mate. It's, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, when a bank sees the value of the property and how much you owe and what the loan to value ratio thinks that needs to be based on your circumstances, uh, if they've got access to your bank account, they can uh, fix that up in their own favour very quickly. And that's what's happened to you, unfortunately. Yeah. So I went to Avcar, put in a complaint. I, Good. I called them every day. The guy goes, leave it with me. I got off the phone. I went, leave it with me? You're still in my savings here, champion. Leave it with me is not good enough. And I just, yeah. they lied. They lied that the LMI provider had taken the money and the LMI provider said the bank shouldn't be lying to you like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's very, very unfortunate. I'm, I'm, we don't need to name that institution either, but I'll leave it up to you. Um, but yeah, just it's a cautionary tale. And unfortunately, um, those people that have bought properties in WA over the last uh, 10 years or so, yeah, put it this way, I've not coached one client that's successfully leveraged from equity growth in that property to go buy somewhere else. So it's one of those things, I suppose. But thankfully, the WA market's not going down anymore. Um, so it has recovered a little bit. But for someone else who bought a property in the resource and mining sector, which is favorable to that region up in Gladstone. I too lost a bunch of money on that one. So it's a, it's a cautionary tale, mate. But anyway, you live, you live and you learn, mate, don't you? You live and you I learn. I certainly do. Um, but yeah, it was, it, what came out of that was the motivation to get this done and to get it done pretty quick. It took about a month and I had it knocked out. And then once I'd done my bit of work and my wife proofread it, she's an amazing proofreader, she proofread it. And then it was just working through all the other parties to get it done. So a book designer is critical. Um, the photo on the cover was um, from an engagement shoot we'd done with our wedding photographer who was this incredible artist. He was an ex-cop who just happened to do weddings and he gave us an engagement shoot, you know, and he had PTSD as well and we connected over the, over shared mental illnesses that I at that point hadn't been diagnosed for. But um, And I think the quality of that cover photo comes out in, in what he his mastery of the lens and, and how that was able to work. So there's a lot of stuff. And I even sent him, even though I own the, the image, I sent him a, a thing saying, do you mind if I use this? Um, and he was just so happy to be collaborating on something like that. So future books, I'm going to be going out to to um, Tamworth to get photos taken with this guy. Good on you, mate, looking after your your, your, um, your network there. Ladies and gents, as promised when I opened this up, that was a bloody cracking podcast. Craig, I feel like I could sit, sit here for another two hours. Daniel, will you enjoy that one as well? He's giving you the thumbs up in the background. So um, I'm sure the contact details for, you know, how to get in touch with you with your, your YouTube um, channel, the book, et cetera, you know, will come your way. And at, the, at the end of the day, you know, ladies and gents, if you've had a chance to resonate with who Craig is and what he's all about, um, you know, reach out to him, see if he can give, give you a hand as well. Craig Ball, thanks very much for being part of Axons Unleashed, mate. You're a legend and uh, we'll look forward to catching up with you soon. Thanks, Robert. You too. And thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, mate. Good on you. See you next time. See you, mate.